Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. Welcome back, everyone. We're going to dive right into this podcast and continue where we left off last week. So this week, we're going to actually talk about the endocrine system. This is a really important system because this is how our fuel gets, our body gets the fuel to respond to that threat, especially around survival, because we need this energy boost. So this is where our adrenaline, noradrenaline, cortisol come from. So our response to that stress, right, pain is seen as a stress response, is really, really important. So I like to think of this as alarm chemistry. When our endocrine system gets triggered, it's actually not a bad thing, especially if the threat is short term. But it's not great when that threat is long term. And this is really problematic for patients who live with chronic pain or any other chronic illness. It leads often to energy depletion, some memory gets affected, and these patients are really prone to stress-related illnesses. So often when they see naturopaths, naturopaths will talk to them about their adrenals being suppressed. It's because their body is constantly in a stress response. They're experiencing pain 24-7. It's like being in a room with a fire alarm on 24-7. So it can be really, really depleting. Let's go to the immune system because I think this is a really fascinating area um, that we don't often think about when we think about pain is how our immune system gets involved. So we talked about the nervous system. We talked about the endocrine system. Now we're going to look at the immune system. And this is when we start to call in the troops, right? This is uh, our inflammatory response to an injury. But also the immune system also usually uh, puts out inflammatory chemistry that help injuries heal. And also in terms of how our body to identify and respond to any threat to your safety and well-being. So any threat. So like I said, modern day threats, your immune system is going to respond to a modern day threat the same way it's, it responds, you know, to an injury. So that's kind of interesting. So what's important here in the immune system is your glial cell, right? That's the workhorse. So let's just look at how the glial cell functions because it's such an important part of our pain response, but also our immune and our nervous system response. Neurons and glial cells interact. And the way I've had this described to me is to think about this in terms of a train. So with your neuron, you have your cell body, and then you have that long myelinated fiber, if it's an A-delta fiber, which is considered the train track, right? And then you have the terminal that connects to the next neuron. And this is where all the exchange of information happens. So when you think about your glial cells, they're like passengers jumping off and on the train. And what they do is they impact that terminal. So glial cells are jumping off, they're jumping on, they're influencing how these neurons communicate with each other. And neurons communicate with these electrical bursts at the synapses, right? This is where those neuroplastic changes can happen. And what's happening is that these glial cells we, what we think are being directed by the brain that there's an ongoing threat, right? So that's why these glial cells start to get very active and they start to have an impact with respect to the communication between the neurons. So if we put that together and kind of look at the normal kind of response, if we look at something like a bone fracture, so what's going to happen if we break a bone? Typically, those harm-sensing nociceptors near the fracture are going to get triggered 
So then our endocrine system needs to be activated because we have to make sure that this is not a kind of injury that is significant around our survival. But once we make sure that our survival is not at risk, then our brain will go into protection mode. So survival first, protection second, and relief of the pain third. So this kicks in our glial cells, which activates our immune system. And the immune system is really important because that's how the the bone is going to heal. And so the bone heals, then pain is supposed to resolve, and then that alarm should shut off. So what could go wrong, right? Well, lots of things could go wrong. Let's look at what happens with chronic or neuroplastic pain. So we know that the bone is healed, but that pain is continuing. So our body, especially at the fracture site, is going to still feel a need to protect. So that brain is still feeling protection need. So these nociceptors that are near that fracture, even though it's healed, they actually remain activated. So this keeps the endocrine system activated. It creates a problem for these glial cells, which feel that they need to stay active. The immune system stays active. All of a sudden now, these glial cells even become more active because that need to protect is there and not going away. So this starts to alter those neurons that we talked about in your body as well as in your brain. So we call these changes neuroplastic changes. So hence the name neuroplastic pain that uh, Alan Gordon uses in his book. So the process uh, we often refer to here is called neuroplasticity. So this is the process that starts to happen. And the nociceptor, it's a vicious cycle. It's like a pain, fear uh, cycle that starts to happen. And these nociceptors start to get louder. So why does this happen? So we need to actually kind of look at where all of this is being generated. We know that the longer pain is there, the alarm stays on. We see this shift away from those normal pathways and see a more focus within the amygdala and the medial prefrontal cortex. So the amygdala, remember, that's the threat detector. So it starts to get hijacked by the the need to protect. So the need for pain to require you to be protected. The other thing that starts to happen, which is quite interesting, is because your brain is also searching for relief, we start to develop these pain protective behaviors. Now, Alan doesn't talk about these in his book, but I think they're really important because there's correlation between how structural pain or acute pain and neuroplastic pain can kind of be interchangeable. And I'll hopefully I'll, experience, I'll explain that a little bit more clear. What these pain protective behaviors do is they start to create what I call structural triggers. That means the normal kinds of triggers. So if I'm sitting here at a podcast and uh, recording one for more than an hour when I try and stand up, my back is going to hurt and my knees are going to make a lot of noise. So I think of those as structural triggers But for some people, they can actually trigger structural pain that you'll feel in your body. And this is really complicated, especially if somebody has neuroplastic pain, because their pain itself is never at zero. They always have pain in the background. A lot of these pain protective behaviors can actually start to be triggered by uh, structural pain. So what are pain protective behaviors? They are a natural response to pain. They are a form of calming techniques in some ways, and they're okay if the pain is short-term, but not if the pain is long-term. They can contribute to wear and tear on your knees and your hips and your shoulders, and they contribute to muscle tension. 
the longer pain is present, the more we get into the habit of using these pain protective behaviors, meaning that most patients that have developed these protective behaviors don't know that they're doing it. So they don't realize that their muscles are staying tight until somebody points it out to them or until they start getting some muscle spasm. They don't realize that they're in a pain tuck until somebody points it out to them or they stand in front of a mirror. What these pain protective behaviors do is they give them temporary relief of pain, but they don't take away their neuroplastic pain and in fact can really aggravate neuroplastic pain. So the classic example, and there's a great picture of what happens when we start to tuck forward when we're experiencing pain. So the further we get, the higher, the, the more weight our body and our hips and our knees will carry. So when we're upright in a normal position, our body is carrying about 12 pounds of weight in order to keep us upright. But the further we come forward, the more weight we start to carry. And we often carry that in our back, in our hips, in our knees. So on average, it's about 42 to 45 pounds. And that's all about keeping us upright. Uh, so eventually, this starts to create some problems for patients. And in fact, I would argue that if your pain started as a structural pain and then progressed to neuroplastic pain, it's not uncommon for you to develop some hip and knee pain in terms of how your body is adjusting. The remedy for that, honestly, you see some really interesting things that are happening now in the clinical field, and these are these upright walkers. Now, this can be challenging if somebody has spinal stenosis, which is really a response to the stress uh, in the back, especially if somebody's staying in a tuck position. So they're usually related to degenerative or arthritic changes. There is a form of congenital spinal stenosis that is different than the degenerative disease. But if we can get patients upright, then that helps to minimize even things like spinal stenosis and these degenerative changes. Other ways that we can encourage patients to correct those behaviors is to think about standing and putting your hands behind your back. And what that does, it opens up your shoulders. So what you're trying to do is you're trying to keep those shoulders open so you're opening up that chest, trying not to bend forward. The other thing that helps is when you're sitting in a chair is to put a pillow or something in the lower back. And this, if we lean into that pillow, it opens up those shoulders. Now, I just want to give you a little bit of a pearl, both for the clinician and the patient, is that, and I have a picture here that I'm looking at, which is an orthotic. So why would I be looking at an orthotic? Well, if you see what happens to patients that are getting orthotics, that means they're getting a correction for a maladaptive habit in terms of uh, what they're, how they're using their foot, like a pronation. And what the orthotic podiatrist will say to them is that you need to ease into this orthotic because your foot is not used to being in a normal position. And the same thing goes for these correcting these pain protective behaviors. Our back and our muscles are not used to having to correct. So it may actually take a bit of time. It's important for patients to not get discouraged, but they almost always have to make it a conscious effort to bring their shoulders back. So pain protective behaviors can also contribute to some associations our brain will make to activities that normally should not be painful. For example, it's very common for patients to describe damp, cold weather making their pain worse. And if you think about it, so very quickly the brain will make a link that cold, damp weather increases pain. But in fact, what happens when we're experiencing cold, damp weather is that our body wants to get warm, right? So we have these mechanisms in place that help our body warm up. So we shiver, so that's muscle work. 
We often tuck like a hedgehog, right? So we're trying to get warm. We wrap ourselves in blankets. So literally what's happening are these adaptations to that cold stress are actually increasing the work of the tissue. And this is often why the pain starts to increase. So it may not have anything to do with the weather at all. So what's the remedy for this? What we need to do is to be able to focus in on the areas that matter. So if I think traditionally, the things that we've always focused on is that we've always focused our treatments on where we feel pain in our body, right? Those structural areas. And that's okay if the cause of the pain is structural. We've also focused our energy on pharmacotherapy or medications that help to change the the neurochemistry around neuropathic pain. And unfortunately, what happens with a lot of that pharmacotherapy is it really is disappointing both for the patient and for the clinician. And mostly why is because the medication works in the central nervous system, it starts to have an effect on people's cognition. And so they often feel terrible. They often get uh, quite a bit of sedation. They feel really groggy. And as we know, things like opioid analgesics don't work well for neuropathic pain. Often the patients need such high dosing in the opioid analgesics that they're very high risk for opioid-induced pain or opioid-induced hyperalgesia. And what I have found historically, which is a really interesting thing that I've noticed, is that patients who are experiencing chronic pain often stay focused on the use of short-acting opioid analgesics. And the reason why I think is that the brain learns very quickly what works and what doesn't. But patients who are experiencing severe pain want to feel that medication work. So the onset of that short-acting analgesic comes on fairly quickly, and the patient feels and learns that they will get some relief. And often when we're using long-acting opiate analgesics, they don't get the same benefit. And in fact, find it very frustrating and don't like to go to those medications. But the analogy I always use for patients is that would I manage somebody with an, a life-limiting illness like cancer on short-acting opiates only? And the answer is no. It's really not good, effective pain medication. Now, after saying that, We want to make sure that the patient is taking what's being prescribed before we switch them over to long-acting because we don't want patients to be using long-acting opiate analgesics if they have not been using their short-acting properly. Everyone is going to be different, so it's very individual-specific. So what the science is telling us now, though, is that we we need to start exploring the origins of these high alert triggers that are coming from our brain So it's really important to see that as part of the approach to the patient's pain. So the first step, which is really hard, is that the individual, as well as the clinician, we need to recognize that neuroplastic pain, while painful, is not dangerous, and that neuroplastic pain, while it feels like it's causing damage in our tissue, is not causing damage in our tissue. And that's really, really hard to do. So why is it hard to do? It's hard to do because it feels unnatural, right? It's not human nature to be unafraid of something that is painful. It's not how we're hardwired to think of pain. Historically, we've always thought of pain in a biomedical model, right? So what that means is that if we have pain in our body, there must be a structural cause. And if we don't find one, then we often will try and blame it on a structural cause. And you see this all the time in the clinical setting, So when patients, what the patients have been told is causing their chronic pain or their neuroplastic pain are often conditions that normally do not cause chronic pain. 
And a great example would be the degenerative conditions that I'll explain in a second. So not challenging this biomedical model often can lead to over-medicating. It can lead to stigma for the patient because the patient often doesn't improve with these structural approaches. And there's a focus on therapies that really don't help. So they actually start to create a problem where patients actually start to feel more despondent. They feel hopeless and helpless around what's being done. If we look at these degenerative conditions and and the terminology we use for degenerative conditions actually are interchangeable. So I think we discussed this in the podcast with Dr. Trudy Taylor, who's a rheumatologist. So when we think of degenerative arthritis, osteoarthritis, they're really the same thing. They're often describing these degenerative changes in different parts of our body. So we think of osteoarthritis in our knees and hips. We think of degenerative disease in our spine, in in our vertebrae, sorry, and things like degenerative disc disease. So what's important to note is that degenerative changes are the normal changes that occur in our joints and bones that happen with aging. So they can contribute to structural or short-term pain, but do not cause neuroplastic pain. And you can imagine if your body is trying to get relief of your pain, how easy it is to put wear and tear on things like our hips and knees. And these are things that often contribute to those degenerative changes. And also, if you think about it, what is the remedy for degenerative changes? It's really about keeping muscles strong and healthy. But if we try and put patients with chronic pain in a really intense exercise program, their pain almost always gets worse. And we have to recognize that. So we can easily set them up for failure if we tell them, yes, you have degenerative changes and the remedy is to make these muscles strong. So here's what you have to do because they will go out and try it, but they will get very discouraged very quickly. So how do we know that degenerative disease is not the cause of neuroplastic pain. And there's been tons of studies. I encourage my colleagues to go talk to your local radiologist because they will actually explain this even better. But there is no correlation with the amount of pain someone is experiencing and what their x-rays show. I mean, it's quite shocking, really. So for example, I can have two spines, a very youthful spine and a very aging spine, right? And I can uh, ask myself, well, who has no pain? And the answer is both of them. And then the second question, who has severe pain? And the answer is both of them. And in fact, I would argue when a patient has severe pain with degenerative changes, it can actually be more discouraging for them sometimes to know that they have these degenerative changes because they feel helpless to do anything about them. And in fact, it's not about the degenerative changes. It's more about the neuroplastic changes that are contributing to their ongoing pain. The same thing happens with scoliosis and these other conditions that we see sometimes in our patients that have severe degenerative changes. So as mentioned, they can cause structural problems, but they often do not cause neuroplastic problems. So the biomedical model, as mentioned, also focuses our treatments on structural causes. And do they help? Well, it really depends. If the cause is structural, they will help. But if not, they need a very specific approach to their neuroplastic pain. So today we use something called the biopsychosocial model to diagnose and manage pain. It's, it's true that it's more complicated, but if we don't uh, explore all of these different dimensions, we'll never be able to truly understand the factors or the triggers that are contributing to the pain experience of the patient. For example, the social dimension really explores the financial burden 
that patients often have to carry who live with chronic pain. Many are unable to work. They're in a very fixed income and have had their incomes drastically reduced. So this is a huge stressor for patients, and it does affect their pain experience, even though they are not consciously thinking that way. And if possible, as mentioned, we need to explore all of these different dimensions. So we're going to stop there, and we're going to pick up next week and talk about how we know uh, what is the evidence that helps us determine if the patient has structural pain or neuroplastic pain. So we're going to end there. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.